0: Hello, and welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Our guest today is Olympic champion Keegan Randall, who played a massive role in putting U.S. cross-country skiing on the map while also becoming a legend in the sport. Now, to name just a few of Keegan's career highlights, well, in 2018, she won the Olympic gold medal in the ladies' team sprint with Jesse Diggins. She is a three times World Cup overall sprint champion. She has 13 World Cup victories, 29 World Cup podiums, six Olympic top 10 results. She is a 17 time U.S. national champion, a five-time Olympian, and a nine-time world championships team member. Man, I'm kind of exhausted just reading all of that, let alone actually having done all of that. Anyway, before Keken was winning Olympic and World Cup gold medals, she was a runner, and she has never stopped being a runner. So, in this conversation, Keegan and I talk about running and how she then got into cross-country skiing. We discuss some of the keys to her remarkable longevity. We talk about her experience of becoming a mother while also being an elite and a sponsored athlete, and how much attitudes still need to change for women in a similar position. And then we also talk about the unthinkable, that Keegan went from winning an Olympic gold medal to being diagnosed with cancer, and how she handled that, and how she is doing today. This episode of Off the Couch is presented by Avocado, makers of the Avocado Green Mattress, which is currently the highest-rated mattress of all categories of mattresses, on Consumer Reports, and Avocado is a company that is leading the way across many industries when it comes to their very impressive sustainability efforts. You can learn more about their highly rated products and their sustainability efforts at avocadogreenmattress.com. And you can also check the show notes of this episode for an ongoing piece that I have been writing called Jonathan's Sleep Experiment, where I talk about a number of the things that I've been reading and doing and the products I've been using to try to get better at this whole sleep thing, which I've never been very good at, but I am working to get better at it since I know that good sleep is so important. So again, we'll have links to the Avocado website and to my write-up in the show notes of this episode. And now, let's go ahead and get to my terrific conversation with Keegan Randall. Here we go. Well, Keegan, how are you today? And where are you today? Hey, I am doing
1: great. Uh, I'm in Anchorage, Alaska. Um, I returned here at the end of August uh, to take a new position and uh, be back around family. And currently it's about uh, 10 below outside. So we're feeling very wintry here, uh, but it's wonderful to be back in the snow and back around my old stomping grounds.
0: Yeah. Well, were you born in Alaska? You, you grew up in Alaska.
1: This is something my siblings tease me mercilessly Uh about because uh I was actually born in Salt Lake City. Oh, no. And we moved to Alaska when I was three. So I claim my whole memorable life has been in Alaska. So (laughs) I consider myself a, you know, born and raised Alaskan, but technically, uh, Salt Lake City did claim me when I competed at the 2002 Olympics as, you know, local athlete Keegan Randall. (laughs) So
0: is that right? (laughs) They they did claim It's it's funny.
1: Yeah, I, I feel like any any tie someone can make to an Olympic athlete, they love to do it and claim it during the Olympics.
0: But Anchorage was, I mean, so from, how did you put it from your memory? Your My whole mem- memorable life. Memorable life. Beca-
1: because I have, I have memories of living in Utah, but it's hard to tell whether those are actual memories right. or those stories that have been told to me because the real vivid memories are all from Alaska.
0: Yeah. I mean, basically, we're all trusting these, like, driver's license we carry around and birth certificates. Someone could be lying to literally all of us and just write anything down. And how would we know? It's so true. And
1: sometimes it's really funny, the weight we put on those Uh information that, like you said, you can't totally validate. So, um, I feel like Alaska raised me, so... Um, I will always claim Alaska is my is my hometown, um, particularly Anchorage. And it's, it was wonderful to be able to travel the world and to have experienced different places. But when I come back to Alaska, this just feels like home.
0: Now, off the couch, we tend to talk to a lot of runners on this. And, you know, ironically... There's probably a number of people out there who maybe don't think of you first and foremost as a runner. (laughs) Maybe we should start by talking a little bit about your kind of path into the running world, and there might be perhaps a few folks surprised to learn that, like, wait a second, this whole cross-country ski thing isn't quite where you started,
1: you're right. Uh, what a lot of people probably don't know about me is that I started as more of a runner. And there were some very key forks in the road through middle school and high school where I almost went the running route. And there were just some lucky circumstances that pulled me into cross-country skiing that ultimately became my pursuit. But running has always been a backbone. Um, I love the feeling of it. I think being a competitive runner growing up taught me so much physically and mentally. I was fortunate to be in a really strong high school program for for cross-country running and track that taught me a lot about teamwork and how to be a, a 24-7 professional athlete. And I credit those experiences for really helping me be one of the best cross-country skiers in the world. And now that I'm done racing, I have really returned to my running roots. And You know, what I love about running is it's just, you throw in a pair of shoes, Mm -hmm. it's the pure effort. uh, It's so measurable, which was something we never could quite get in cross-country skiing. So it's, yeah, it's a big part of my story and um, it's fun to be able to look back a little bit.
0: Say more about that. You said we never could make things quite as measurable in cross-country skiing. What do you mean?
1: So I think about mostly on the track, how you can go out and you can bang out a set of 400s and you're going to know I'm in shape to hit my goals or "Ah, I got some work to do. I mean, you could just, you just go out and the track it's flat. It's always the same distance. Yeah. There's a little bit of wind. Yeah. There's a little bit of temperature, but for the most part, it will tell you where you're at cross country skiing. Number one, the courses are all different. The Snow conditions vary widely. You know, the wax on your skis can matter on day to day. A lot of our racing is more about person to person and you can't control other people. It's we do have parts of a lot of it that is against the clock, but there's just so many factors in cross country. And so I couldn't go out and do a specific workout that would necessarily tell me exactly where I was, like I could in running, hmm. either on the track or on a treadmill, or on that favorite cross-country running course.
0: Huh. Okay. And in that regard, you personally appreciate the reduction of variables.
1: I do. I am w- one of those runners. I love splits. When I would run the mile in high school track, I would be looking at my watch every time I crossed that, that start line. And love to see what the splits would tell me about where I was, get, where I was. And uh, when I've done the marathons now in the last couple of years, it's all about pace and where you're at. And in um, skiing, it's it's a lot more on feel.
0: Okay. You mentioned that you had a couple of significant forks in the road. I think that that's actually one of my favorite things in the world to talk to people about. You know, like anyone. But like, let me understand a couple of the most serious forks in the road for any individual I'm talking to. And I feel like you learned something extremely significant about them. And so what feels like the first fork in the road for you?
1: I don't know if it officially counts as a fork in the road, but at four years old, my dad really wanted to do this local 10K. And he thought that he could just show up at the race and he'd run into someone he knew and he could pass me off and go run the race. Well, We got there just before the start of the race and didn't see anybody. So he ended up throwing me on his shoulders and I did the 10 K race kind of on and off his shoulders. I ran parts of it, (laughs) but we did it. We did it together. And that started uh, a thing where with, with my parents um, and my siblings, we would participate in all the local races and growing up in Anchorage, there was this, this kids running club, That put on races for kids. It was track meets. It was road races. It was some cross country running. There was this uh, fall cross country running series called the Tuesday night race. So I kind of feel like the environment I grew up in had these events that were fun. I did it with my family that got me interested in the sport of running when I could have gone to tennis lessons, or I could have gone to hockey practice, or any, I was definitely a sport-oriented kid, but getting those early running experiences and having fun with it, I think was important. Sixth grade, my PE teacher put on this annual mile race, and it was around our school. He measured it out, you know, it was like 5.3 laps or something, and so it became this big deal to, to try to get a school record, and to every year you got to do your mile run and kind of see your progression from year to year. So I got interested in the measurable part of running and trying to go after that goal and, and bring that time down. So had I not had that P teacher who was interested in that, because they don't necessarily do that at every school, yeah. then maybe I wouldn't have kind of discovered the the fun part of, of goal setting and that challenging part. But the really big fork for me came in seventh grade. The lo- One of the local high school teams came to run with our middle school track team. And I happened to meet the coach and he noticed I was kind of keeping up with some of his runners during the workout. So he said, hey, I run a summer training group for the high school kids. You'd be welcome to join us. So I thought that sounded great and I joined them. Well, I was actually zoned to go to a different high school. But after that summer of meeting those kids, getting to know the coach, I just loved the, I loved the team. So I ended up applying to this alternative high school program that helped me zone to that other high school which is called East High School. And so I ended up going to East instead of Bartlett. And Bartlett was a strong running school. So I think if I'd stayed at Bartlett, I and freshman and sophomore year I wanted to go D, you know division 1 cross country running at one of the big schools. I mean running was my focus. I did the Foot Locker Western Regions. Uh, those two years and almost qualified for nationals. And so that was my set. Well, then at the end of 10th grade, my running coach at East, Harry Johnson, he moved out of town. And so then I needed a new training group. And I happened to get introduced to this ski coach who was starting a new ski program. And at the time it was like, well, skiing, ski training should be pretty good cross training. And so I ended up doing that. I think had I gone to the other school... I would have just I wouldn't have had that introduction and and thankfully the the running coach at East also was the ski coach so there was a lot of encouragement to do all to do all the sports cross country running cross country skiing and track and so I think back to that day in seventh grade if that coach hadn't come and I'd gone to the other high school I probably would have gone the running track and I think I could have been a moderately successful college runner. But coming from Alaska and going into full-time running year-round, I saw a lot of athletes I competed against get injured, get burnt out, and leave the sport. And I'm not sure I would have made it to the Olympic level or successful quite like I did in skiing. And so that ended up being a very important fork in the road.
0: Wow. That was really well done. Okay. So just to be clear, you are saying that you are attributing... Good bit of your success in the fact that you were not specializing too early. Do I have that right or? Definitely.
1: I think growing up doing a lot of different sports, I did play soccer, I did do tennis lessons, but I went to those community fun runs with my family. I got competitive in middle school. I did basketball, running, soccer, it just dabbled with a lot of different things. And my parents encouraged me to do a lot of things. And said, you know, you once you've committed to a season, you try it out. But if at the end of the season you want to try something else, you're kind of free to do that. And I think dabbling with a lot of things growing up gave me a broad set of skills. Uh, some things I was good at, some things I wasn't good at. You know, you learn almost as much from the failures yep. as you do from the wins. Yep. Uh, and then that real mix of things. By the time I did get serious in high school, I was excited. I was fresh. And even through high school, I continued to run to do cross-country running, cross-country skiing, and track. So I had three seasons, things were fresh. And then I graduated from high school, I decided to commit to skiing full-time. And I believe that's why I was able to have a 20-year career in cross-country skiing.
0: This is one of my favorite topics. There is a book called Range by David Epstein. Are you familiar with this? I'm
1: familiar with David Epstein. He's he's written a few good
0: books. Yeah. And this is one of his primary arguments and i did not know this part of your story but you've slide exactly into the mold here where his argument is that over specialization at a young age actually can go on to hinder like elite 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 performance and like Exhibit number, I don't know, 283, you. (laughs) I think you slot in perfectly here.
1: Well, there's so many factors. And certainly, I think just the the training and and being too intense too early has its downsides. I also think coming from a place like Alaska, where it's a small, it's a big state, but it's a small pond. Mm -hmm. And if you end up being in the big fish in the small pond, and then you make that jump to the national level or the international level, and all of a sudden... You're just one small fish in a big mm. pond. I've seen that affect a lot of athletes as well. And so I think the diversity of things growing up gave me a chance to, like I said, fail almost as much as I could win and and develop a broad set of skills. And then when I did make that jump, uh, I don't know, there was just kind of experience to draw from and I wasn't living and dying by my results only. And so it almost helped on the mental side as much as it helped on the physical side.
0: Yeah. Turns out both pretty significant, huh?
1: Yeah. And like I said, you know, like came down to a lucky day in track. And um and uh, and uh what's cool is that coach, um, like I said, his name is Harry Johnson. He's continued to be a, a really amazing friend and coach and mentor. And he actually helped me get ready for the marathons that I've been running. And he and I teamed up for um, my first gravel bike race this summer. Huh. And I got to see him. So- um, which is just really lucky to have a, a, such a great coaching influence early on.
0: So now you're gravel racing.
1: Well, I did my first one this year, okay. 90 mile race. Uh, it was called the last best ride in Whitefish, Montana. It took me six hours. There were 8,000 feet of climbing and two. Definitely in the first two hours, I was like, what on earth have I signed myself up for? Because it was intense. I mean, there were national level riders there. The Mm. pace was hard. I didn't, I hadn't had a time to pre-ride the course. So I was kind of just like going with whatever was coming at me. But it was a really cool experience. Mm. And having been the best in the world as a cross-country skier, I find it really fun to throw myself into things now where I am a fish out of water. I mean, yes, I have the cardiovascular fitness crossover and I've, I've ridden a bike, so I'm a decent bike handler. But when it comes to strategy, it comes to racing that long, all of that. I mean, I question like I can do this right (laughs) at at the, at a relatively high level. So it's, it was a, it was a great goal to have over the summer. And then as soon as that goal was over, I transitioned to, I'd, I'd, committed to running the Boston Marathon with a couple of teammates. And that was just six weeks after the gravel race. So it was a quick transition off the bike on onto the roads.
0: I love this. Um, Talk to me about Boston.
1: Well, it feels so good to have done such an iconic race. Mm. I feel like now I can talk Boston with people. Um, It's a funny race in that you're looking at the course profile going, oh, sweet, first six miles downhill. You know, it's a net downhill race. Like, this is going to be awesome. And people told me, you know, watch out for that opening downhill section. And so I'm going out, I'm running with a couple of good friends. Uh, We're just, we're chit-chatting, but I look down at my watch and we're running a little ahead of schedule. And uh, I kind of knew we were headed for trouble, but just kind of ran with it. And then sure enough, around 10 miles, when things start to flatten out, the legs uh, started to lose a little bit of power. And then uh, it was, it was a real challenge to get there um, to the end, I Wanted to run into three hours, and I ran three hours and 27 seconds. I came all around the corner onto Boylston Street. I could see the finish, and I'm looking at my watch going, I don't think it's going to happen. So <laughs> a, little, a little agonizing to be so close. But, you know, when you come to those events and you run with so many people hmm. – it's, it really is incredible. And having that goal on the schedule was super motivating for me to get out and do some hard workouts, to get in some longer runs. This was a chance to beat up with two of my Olympic teammates, um, who I'd run New York with two years before. So yeah, great experience. Um, definitely hobbled around for a good two weeks afterwards, but you know, like I said, hurts
0: so good. <laughs> um, I asked you about a couple fork in the roads. I want to ask maybe a somewhat related question. Self-identity, tell me how you've thought about that over the years. And I guess I'm curious if this somehow feels related to you, to your like remarkably long and successful career in cross-country skiing. Um, Let me stop and just open up the question. Like how has that notion of self-identity played out or been a big thing to you or not? Let's go back to, I don't know, middle school throughout till today.
1: I think my identity has always been tied to being an athlete, um, but not in a way to where I had to feel like I had to win all the time or that I had to be the best. I certainly had the drive to want to be the best. And early on, I discovered that it was really important to push myself towards a goal. And as long as I gave it my best then I always got to walk away with this satisfied feeling that repaid all the debt I'd taken out with the hard work it had taken with the training and the sacrifice and the commitment. And so I've always loved being active. I've loved feeling strong. I've loved challenging myself and going after these goals. For a while, it was I was on a soccer track. Then another, because that's what The 94 women were winning the World Cup and that was what my heroes were doing and that's what my friends were doing. And then I got really into alpine skiing because Tommy Moe from Alaska and Peekaboo Street and they were winning medals and so I wanted to be an Olympic alpine skier. And then I got into running and, you know, started to channel things that way. And so running was just a way I think I built energy off of it. I built confidence being an athlete and I've always had some big goal, whether it was making the Olympics After I went to my first games in 2002, I really felt inspired to try to win an Olympic medal, which at the time, no American woman had ever done. And it just seemed like this kind of exciting open frontier that felt fun to chase after. But that course took 16 years to actually reach that goal. But along the way, I just, I always had these goals I was chasing and and things were, well, I didn't have the perfect trajectory and improvement all the time. I kind of could always sense I was progressing, that that work was building towards something. And along the way, I started to realize that not only did I chase my own goals, but in doing so, I got to be this inspirational role model for why we put our forward our best effort, why we challenge ourselves, why we make those daily physical healthy activities. And so it just, it became my identity to not only be this strong athlete, but to then be this advocate for, for physical activity and The funny thing, though, is when I retired from my career you know, off of a gold medal, the highest of highs in 2018, that was the first time in my entire life that I really had to confront. Like, well, I still want to be a strong athlete, but now I'm not going to be necessarily the strongest. I'm probably never going to be quite as strong as I was, but it's still important to me. And so I've got to figure out how to just re- Figure the expectations in my mind. Figure out ways that I still challenge myself that still give me fun opportunities, um, and I'm just going to have to prioritize it almost more than I ever have before, just to keep it in there when all the other priorities in life come piling in. Being a parent, doing a career, all these things. So it's not your job anymore. It's like you really have to fight to keep it in the in there, and you don't have to go out and do intervals every day. You don't have to get in the gym. But I know that that makes me feel good and is important. So I've just had to figure out how I keep that in there.
0: And that still feels like a bit of an ongoing thing?
1: Well, it is because again, like I I can tell, I think you get this honeymoon period for about a year after you retire where you don't have to do a lot of training, but you're still so fit. Uh And it really like takes no time at all. You just kind of put in a few good workouts and like, boom, it feels like that gears right back there. But after about a year, unless you really maintain it, that strength starts to disappear. And especially that touch with those really hard efforts. And so I'll jump in a ski race like the American Birkenbeiner, which is the largest cross-country ski race in North America. And I'm at the start line with women I raced against. And they're announcing me as Keegan Randall, world champion Olympic gold medalist. And then we go off the start gun and I can't hang for a K. Like they dropped me and then all of a sudden, like getting through 50K is really hard. And I appreciate the fitness and the strength it takes. So it it just takes a little bit of adjustment in my head to go. People are expecting me to be this top level athlete and it's OK that I'm not anymore. But I'm also not going to just step away and give up because I want to save face. Like I want to get out there and still push myself. And I still love the feeling of just being absolutely depleted at the finish line you know, physically wrecked, but somehow it gives you the best feeling. And unless I keep opportunities like that in my daily life, I'm going to miss out on that.
0: This sounds remarkably well-adjusted of you. Like, because I, I, it would not be at all surprising if you were like, yeah, I retired and it's not a given that I'm about to go crush the competition when I sign up for something. Therefore... I'm just going to kind of wave goodbye and, you know, mic drop right off into the sunset, whatever metaphors you want to use here. But you, it does sound actually really well adjusted to be like, that was a chapter of life when I got to sort of be devoted almost exclusively to that pursuit. And now it's a different chapter and I'm good with it and I dig it. But I think a lot of elite athletes would really struggle with something like that.
1: No, no. No, I think they do. And, and I think you see a lot of athletes really just walk away from competition or even hard workouts. Um, and part of it maybe is because they're just burnout. Part of it is because maybe they're just like, yeah, I'll never measure up to where I was, or where I used to be. So it's not, I can't take not being that person. But for me, I'm just like, I still love the way it makes me feel. I still want to do this. Um, it's not to say I don't take an ego hit every now and again. Um, that I don't, you know, my mind remembers where I should be and what I should be able to do. and then sometimes my body just doesn't want to go there. But I just I just kind of remind myself that i I love I love doing it, and I when you push yourself, you just get this amazing benefit from it. But so I kind of equate it to I've experienced the amplitude of of pushing really hard, you know, being in physical agony, but then getting this benefit from it. Like you can, you can bop along and not push yourself and never experience the pain, but you also don't experience the exhilaration. So for me, I still want to have those hits of exhilaration. So I need to push myself and make it, make myself uncomfortable. And, uh, it's just in a little different venue and level than I used to do, but it's still important to me. And yeah, I have fun with it. And I, and I work hard to encourage people to come do it with me. And, uh, so recently uh, here in Anchorage, I've been working out a couple times a week with two of my Olympic teammates who are both retired now as well. One has a mom of twins working full time. The other one's trying to get her CPA designation. So we're all busy. We're all doing other things, but we have all come back together. and We meet at the gym at six in the morning on Mondays and just out and, you know, kind of hammer a good workout. And we realize like, yeah, this makes us feel good. <laughs> and, and of course, it's especially fun to be able to do it together.
0: <laughs> I might back off my claim of you being well adjusted. That There's a version here where I'm tempted to say like, that's a little psychotic, but that's just because I'm lazy, you know? So like, good, good, good on you. (laughs) Talk a little bit about your running life while you were going through a couple decades of uh, your your cross-country ski career. I'd I'd be curious to ask about that. And then I kind of want to ask like, what's your routine look like these days?
1: Well, thankfully, running was still a huge part of my training as a cross-country skier. I mean, just for the base distance workouts, uh, we would try to do one three to four-hour workout a week. And here in Alaska, we love to go for long mountain runs. Um, And it was always so fun to be able to cover so much trail on your own power and be in these beautiful places and... So I love that. I got to do a lot of running as my training. Um, I would still jump in running races because I mean, there's nothing like pushing yourself in a running race and there's a lot of great community races in Alaska. So it was really fun visibility to be in the community to, you know, be this high level athlete and yet jump in a community 5k. And so I'm, I got to do some of that. And, um, Set some, set some course records, which, you know, now I could try to chase after, although I don't, I don't think I'm going to be in that shape ever again. We'll see. Um, so I love that part of it. And now um, running is just so simple that it is a real go-to activity for me because I know I can get a really good workout by throwing on a pair of shoes and go out and running. And uh, here in Alaska in the winter, like I have a five-year-old at home. And so being able to run on the treadmill is actually it's not my favorite workout in the world, but it gets the job done. Mm -hmm. Like, again, I get a really good workout. I feel good about, and I can do it here while he's sleeping in the morning, get it done early in the day and then head out. So, um, I still love running for that reason. Um, you know, the staying healthy is getting a little harder now because I think getting a little bit older, you know, I have put my body through a lot with all the training. So I have a, you know, a creaky Achilles that flares up every once in a while In the lead up to Boston, I was like keeping it like just at bay to get through the race. So I have to be a little careful sometimes of jumping right off the couch and into things. But overall, yeah, I really love running. And it's my favorite way to catch up with people. Like if I haven't seen someone in a long time, it's like, hey, let's go for a run. Or if I need to be creative about something, Hmm. let's go for a run. Hmm. And my mind will just start running. I just love it.
0: Hmm. This is a question that I like to ask. And since you talked about, you brought up, doing things off the couch. I was very curious. And now having heard this particular conversation, what's the most off the couch thing you've ever done?
1: Ooh, most off the couch thing.
0: (laughs) I feel like there might be a list of like 37 possibilities here, given everything you've just said.
1: Well, I don't know if it fully counts, but in 2008, so I'm kind of, I would say halfway through my competitive ski racing career, I'd started the season super strong. I won my first World Cup uh, I was in fantastic shape but towards the end of the season I ended up developing this massive blood clot in my leg and so I ended up in the hospital um, to try to get the blood clot out and so I was literally on the couch like leg up but i the cl- I had the clot cleared out the first time came back I was recovering taking it super easy and then my clot ended up coming back like we just didn't get the right mix of the medication. And so the second time after I came out of the hospital, my doctors were literally like, the more you can keep your blood flowing, the better. So as long as you're like, you're not experiencing a lot of pain, go for it. So when I got the all clear of that, I went out and um, thankfully it was like April in Alaska. Mm -hmm. So we still had snow on the ski trails. So I got out and started skiing hard. And I just kind of took that like the the more you can get that blood pump, and the better straight, you know, straight went straight to my head. And I, I pushed it really hard, but I think maybe my ambition was a little bit greater than what my body was ready to handle at that point. So yeah, I remember going, going maybe a little overboard with that. Um, but that went from the extreme of like, literally like laying in the hospital to going out and hammering. Um, so that was one instance. And then now I feel like it's a total time thing. Uh, I used to hear about, you know, we used to call people master blasters, who, you know, no one, when you're training as a ski racer, you spend a lot of your time training at a very easy level, like conversation pace. And so I could never understand why when I would meet up with friends who didn't train all the time, they always wanted to go so fast. But now I get it because, You don't have three hours just to go out and meander around. It's like, I have an hour. I want to feel like I got a workout. So you just like hop out of the car and you just go. And so I feel like I end up doing a lot of workouts these days where I don't necessarily like give myself the warm up. It's just like, I just get out there and I just want to hammer. (laughs) And it doesn't always feel great. Uh Like you warm up for a reason. Yeah. (laughs) But it's just, I still can't help it.
0: Okay. So these days in Anchorage, I'm taking it at least for... This particular moment in time, we're in the middle of December, you're probably doing exclusively treadmill workouts. Is that right?
1: Well, thankfully uh, for running mostly. Um, a little bit of outdoor running. Um, we have we have decent snow on the ground right now. So I've actually been able to Nordic ski a few times a week. And I have a Zwift or um, a Wahoo Smart Trainer. So mm-hmm. I fire up the Zwift in the morning and I ride Zwift, which has also been kind of a fun way to uh, To get up early, get that workout in while my son is sleeping, and kind of a fun way to challenge myself because, of course, you can do the workouts yeah. or or ra- race people. So I do I do enjoy that, and then yeah, the treadmill workouts have been great thrown in. When I'm, I was traveling last week and so I hit up the elliptical because I find when I travel, because getting anywhere from Alaska is like a minimum eight hours, like it's just a lot of flying. So after sitting for so long, if I jump right into a run, that can blow up my Achilles. So I found like if I can find a hotel gym with an elliptical, sometimes I'll hit that for my first workout to give myself a little bit of an adjustment um, to recover from the travel.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, it's
1: it's all about efficiency these days.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so, but primarily treadmill, cross-country skiing, Wahoo trainer, and then if you're traveling, first workout, elliptical.
1: Yep, a little bit of ski erg still. Like I'm losing upper body strength quite a bit from my career, so I tried to get on the ski erg just to add a little bit of upper body in there. Um, And then I'm trying to stay in the gym twice a week to do strength training twice a week.
0: This is back to you sounding quite (laughs) (laughs) well-rounded.
1: Well... I, I guess I fall back into old habits. Um, I, I, fi- I find I like a little bit of structure, and it's all self-imposed at this point. Because again, there's no one writing a training plan for me. There's no one, nothing to say I have to do this, but I just kind of feel like strength twice a week is just going to keep a good balance, uh, just for general strength and injury prevention. Um, I like to try to get in one or two intensity workouts a week where I make myself breathe hard and, you know, feel that heaviness in the legs a little bit. And then um, and then just try to do a variety of, of activities so that I don't get too burnout on anything.
0: You mentioned this, but I want to kind of circle back to it a bit. Talking about being an athlete and being a mother. Talk a little bit about that initial sort of new position to be in or transition and specifically just how that kind of went in your own personal experience?
1: Well, I went to my fourth Olympics as the gold medal favorite in the individual skate sprint. So with cross country skiing, you have two techniques and you have short distance and long distance. Well, I happen to be really good at the short distance in the skate technique, but that event only comes up every other Olympics. So I went into 2014, gold medal favorite skate sprint. I ended up getting knocked out in the quarterfinals. So after that season, I had a big decision to make. It was going to be another eight years before I could get another chance at that Olympic event. I had had a pretty successful career up to that point, but at the same time, I had just put in the work and it was really getting fun. My My individual results were really strong, but more importantly, our team had been getting stronger and stronger. And so... I looked ahead to the next Olympics in 2018. Uh, we there was a team event, a two-person team event that was going to be skate a skate sprint relay, and then we had, were getting really strong in the four-person relay as well. So I kind of went, man, I still want to go after one more Olympics, still try to get that medal. I'd love to try to do it with a team, but I was also 31 at that point, and I was married, and I wanted to. I was really excited to become a mom, so I just did some thinking, and then. Realized that there was this year in between Olympics where there's no world championships, there's no Olympics. And so I figured if I could ever target a year, maybe I'd take a winter off, try to have a baby and then see if I could do a comeback. And thankfully, the timing worked out, although it was very... uh it was very unknown territory. I mean, I, I'm a big researcher, so I was like, Okay, you know, what does it mean to be an elite athlete? How do you know, can you can you get pregnant? Does training affect it? Um, you know, what is all that? And there just wasn't a lot of like go to here's the go to manual for it. So uh, thankfully I kinda I kept training because not knowing what was gonna happen, I didn't want to find myself out of shape if, if I was gonna be entering a season. So I kept training at a high level. Thankfully I, I got pregnant and then I ended up taking that winter off from racing. And so, right away, I I was upfront with my sponsors, and I said, "Look, I have full intentions of coming back, uh, but of course, there's a lot of unknowns." and um, I'm willing to uh, be creative here. And while I'm not racing, I can be available for in-person appearances. I can write a blog. I can talk about, you know, how my pregnancy is affecting my body. And, you know, I just, I saw it as a a really golden opportunity, even though I wasn't going to be traditionally racing for my sponsors, I could still provide a lot of value. And I was really fortunate that my sponsors appreciated that value. They were excited about it, I was also really lucky that the U.S. ski team was was excited that I wasn't going to retire, that I was going to keep racing because in a sense they had invested in me all those years and I was kind of a known quantity. And so they supported me to take a year back. And then and then when I returned, I was able to bring my family on the road. And then fortunately, I was able to kind of pull together the right support system of uh, my my parents, my uh, husband's parents. And we were able to come back onto the World Cup and travel as a family. And I got to experience being an elite athlete, becoming a mom. And while it took some patience, I would say it was a f- about a full 10 months before I really felt like I got my full race gear back. I found that found that top gear again. And it was such an amazing perspective shift to become a mom uh, that deep into my career. I felt like it brought a lot of positive things, so just a new focus. Uh, it was less about the results. It was more about As long as I gave it my best, I got to come home to a little baby that was happy to see me and just so many great things. Of course, I get to do one more Olympics. I get named to that team sprint team. We make history. I know I'm going to retire. So I had a really positive experience. But then now that I've been in that world, I've ended up talking with other athletes and like notable athletes like Allison Felix um, who have not had that kind of support and that ability to become a mom and have the the patience to build back into time. And so I, I think we are starting to head the right direction. It's been out in the public consciousness now, and I think we've realized we're not as far forward as we thought we were. And I think we're seeing the advantages now of supporting female athletes to become moms and there's plenty of men out there that are parents too, but it's just a little different dynamic because the changes to your body aren't so drastic. Um, and as a as a young mom, just like that connection with your kid is just so strong. So I'm happy to see that things are going the right direction because I, I just really saw positives on all sides, um, but we can't rest yet. There's still a lot of work to do.
0: Right. And what i'd like to do now so that was extremely well done and you talked about your experience what i'd like to do now is if there are team managers listening to this conversation you know heads of companies brands in the outdoor space etc i'd love to ask you to make the case for the next time there is an athlete who has gotten pregnant talk about Why it shouldn't just be viewed as, oh, man, we're not going to be able to have this athlete do A, B, or C. Make the case for the advantages here.
1: Well, I think that there are so many women out there who are either moms themselves or want to become moms, are wondering about how it's going to change their life. Are they going to continue to be able to be active, to be athletes? So I think the role model piece of it is huge for a company to support a female athlete who takes some time off to become pregnant and come back it just shows number 1 that you that athlete is a person that it's not a purely transactional relationship which i think in marketing is becoming more and more important I think the piece of now this this athlete who had great results, now you get to really see their human side. And now they're so much more relatable because they're a mom and you're a mom. So I think the ability for them to connect and engage with the audience is great. And then in my case, like every winter, I'd be off in Europe for five months racing. And a lot of my sponsors were in the US. So I made the proposition that, hey, when I'm taking a year off while I'm pregnant, I can be around. I can come and do in-person events. Um, you know we can we can tell the story of what I'm what my pregnancy journey is is like because I think that's kind of an interesting thing to talk about from an elite athlete perspective. So there just there was so in my mind so much more opportunity and yeah I wasn't uh, on the world stage like racing with the logo every weekend and and some people would say, well there's too much risk like what if you don't come back? what if you're not as strong again? But there are so many good examples. And most of these women, like if they say, yeah, I'm going to step back to have a baby, like you know they're intense. You know they're dedicated. And I think it's a very small risk. And there, there are ways to handle that. But I, I just think they're, it's, it's a no-brainer in my mind. And other countries do it so well. Like in Scandinavia, where a lot of strong skiers come from, um, they have a year of maternity leave, you know, built in, like they get paid while they're, you know, having the baby and coming back. And it's just a little bit more of a, a more culturally acceptable thing. And I really don't see the downsides that people like to state as the reasons why we shouldn't support. So the, the thing that occurred to me was that I felt like I took my maternity leave a little bit while i was pregnant because i wasn't racing so my time off work was almost before the baby came and then once my son was born then i got back into training and within a few months i was able to i was ready to compete again um and then it was just it was so wonderful to have him along for the
0: ride you make a great case um yeah i think the relatability aspects of what you've just said and and the chance to pull real hard you know to be on this journey with an athlete and you know sort of some of the ups and downs and now let's let's root for you to get back to where you were and perhaps better than you've ever been i i, I think you've you've made the case well and yeah as you said i would like to think we're maybe in a better position in say this country than ever before and yet I'm still hearing, like, like you, too many stories with too many really high-profile athletes that are still not getting the kind of support that I think we would sort of assume would be happening at, as we're about to move into 2022.
1: Yeah, it's, it's pretty wild sometimes when you when you hear these big profile cases or you realize that this hasn't been written into contracts, because they're really, if you go back and dig... You can find so many good examples. But what I learned when I was going through it is I was thirsty for knowledge, thirsty to see who else had done it, how had they done it, but it was really hard to find the information. And I think that's a piece of it too. We're not telling the success stories well enough. We're not putting that information in those stories in a place that's easy to see. And for women in particular, I think they respond really well to other women they can relate to. So for the elite athletes who are considering it, wondering how you do it, when they can see another athlete who's successfully done it, well, then that gives them the confidence. And then there's almost a bit of a route to follow. But if that information's not out there and people aren't talking about it because they're afraid to talk about it or, you know, we don't feel that, you know, sometimes we do have to see women and men a little bit different. And I think sports is still, you know, Title IX was so impactful, but yet in a lot of ways in sport, we're still kind of catching up on how We make sport work for women and not just always doing it the way we do it with men's sports.
0: I want to ask you about one other topic that I'm very happy to say hasn't really been at the front of your mind, perhaps. I think this is good news, but you also have your own experience with cancer. And just selfishly slash personally, I was just very curious to hear how things are going these days? And let me just put the question that way.
1: Well, first I'm going to knock on wood, you know, yeah. <laughs> but um, no, thankfully these days things are going, as, as far as I know, things are going really well. So coming off the Olympic gold medal, which happened in February of 2018, in May of 2018, I found out I had aggressive breast cancer. And I was fortunate that I am an athlete. I know my body pretty well. I happened to be getting ready for bed one night, and I felt this little hard spot on my chest that was about the size of a pea. Would have been super easy to miss. In fact, I joked at first that it was my muscle melting away already, and maybe it was just my rib bone. But thankfully, I knew it didn't feel right, and I went and got it checked, as ridiculous as it seemed. And that helped me diagnose my cancer early. Um, I, it had already traveled to a lymph node, so it was, it was aggressive and it was moving fast, but, um, I was able to jump into chemotherapy, surgery, radiation, and it was about an intense 12 months to a year of active treatment. Um, but it's been almost two years since I finished that treatment and my hair has grown back. I've run one sub two, one sub three hour marathon and almost a second, (laughs) um, And, uh, and thankfully, yeah, things have been going well, I really felt like physically I bounced back to um, as good as I'd ever been. And um, gave me a real shift in perspective. Um, I think I've always been a pretty positive person and tried to be focused in the moment. But especially being a mom, I feel like after having gone having to face like something like cancer, where it's so out of your control. I mean, you do the best you can, but you know, anything can happen. And I just feel like every day is a gift and I've really tried to think hard about my priorities and I'm living my life as if I'm going to be here around for another 50, you know, hundred years. But, um, I also want to make sure I take advantage of every single day because you just, you just never know. And, uh, and I feel like what I would have maybe complained about or said it was a mediocre day before, um, every day feels amazing. Like when I'm going out and pushing myself and my legs are heavy and I don't want to be out there, it's like, yeah, but I get to be out here. And and I can sh- almost shift my perspective in the moment, you know, having gone through that experience. Um, so it's, it's pretty wild. I think um, going back to the whole role model piece for me to go from an Olympic gold medalist to having to face cancer was just so wild. Like I went through that whole mixture of emotions of like disbelief and Uh, frustration. And yet, being an athlete helped me tremendously process all that and figure out where to put my focus, how to stay positive, how to... um, I was great. I was super lucky to be surrounded by an amazing team of people who are also positive and supportive. And so through it all now, I have realized how much physical activity was really helpful for me during treatment. And so being able to speak to that, being able to speak to uh, you know the cancer experience as a young woman, um, as a mother, I just feel like it's given me um, more power, not more power, but a, an amazing platform to be more of a role model than I could have been as just an Olympic gold medalist. Because it's one thing to be like, oh, work hard, you know, dream big. And, you know, you You get everything you want, but to really have to go through something where you have so less control and, um, you get really knocked down, um, you know, it's just such, it's an, it's unfortunate, but it's a, it's a relatable experience to a lot of people who've either been through it themselves or they've watched someone go through it. And so to be able to speak to what helped me, um, to be honest about the struggles, um i think has has just really given me an opportunity to have an impact and that's been a silver lining for sure
0: i mean it's like frankly if your life was sort of a movie script i'd be like this is a bad movie script right like this isn't believable we have this remarkable insane high to this. And I'm like, no, let's start the script over where you need to, you know, people will just roll their eyes, but that was your reality. Now I promised you, I was going to ask a dumb question and here it comes. You ready? I'm ready. I I know, I know that, you know, you have spoken about, you know, like underscoring, trying to hammer home the message of like early detection when it comes to cancer. Here's the dumb part. I think that I sometimes am like, yeah, I'm too busy for like to like to get cancer and then as i've been thinking about this conversation with you it's like yeah i'm pretty sure that when you're like i just won literally like i am literally on top of the mountain i doubt you were sitting around like oh i don't know could happen to me you know uh, talk to me about that because if if I'm doing this from the point of view of I'm too busy and you had the experience of like, I am literally on top of the world, top of this sport, and then you get the news, I'm pretty sure that means any of us can get the news. But it, but am I right about your headspace? This was unthinkable. Is that fair? That's a great way to put it, unthinkable.
1: Farthest from my mind. In fact, when I when I discovered it, It did give me a sinking feeling, but it was just so out of the realm of possibility. It was like, okay, this is going to be a story someday about the time I got worked up about this little thing I found, and it turned out to be nothing. But yet, no, it really was. And I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I had this false sense of security that I eat right, I exercise, I take good care of myself. This doesn't happen to people like me. I have no family history. It doesn't happen to women under 40. I just so many things that made it seem impossible. And yet it happened to me. So on one hand, you could say, yeah, shoot, nobody's safe. Um, at the same time, I think it is good to remember that if you do the right things, if you take care of yourself, it does lessen the chance. And I will say that having gone into my treatment in such amazing yes. shape did undoubtedly help me. It helped me process the treatment. The athletic mindset I've cultivated as an Olympic competitor over my entire lifetime helped me deal with that information and how I was going to focus. The support team I had around me, you know, I wasn't the average cancer patient. I definitely had a lot of legs up in terms of the support that I that I received. Um, so while there is some frustration, it, yeah, it can happen to anybody. And of course, once you uncover the lid, you start to hear stories about many other elite athletes amazing humans that cancer surprised them too and not everybody had has had the outcome that I've had thus far and that's been very humbling Um, there was actually a Finnish cross-country skier that as soon as I got my diagnosis I learned of hers and we had competed against each other at world juniors and she was also a mom of a little girl and she got an aggressive form of stomach cancer and ultimately passed away a few months later. And that was just gut, gut-wrenching because I know I didn't do anything special compared to what she did. I had a good outcome, you know. And so again, it's just that perspective of let's not take a day for granted. Let's do do the right things because it gives us the best chance and to have the confidence to know that if we do go something, we're going to give it everything we have to do our best to get through it. And that's all you can count on at the end of the day.
0: Here, here. And let's not ignore seemingly silly signs. So the early detection thing as another critical piece with doing our best to be healthy and fit as healthy and fit as we can be I think that's just an important one to drive home, all of the pieces you've just said. And finally, always a good idea and good practice, let's not take the day for granted.
1: Yeah, and it also matters if you if you notice something and you get it checked, it can be easy for a medical provider to say look to look at you and go, "Oh, you're young and healthy, it's probably nothing." Huh. So it's also important huh. I think to remember to advocate for yourself a little bit, to see it through the best you can so that you can at least have the peace of mind I got it checked. I did as much as I could, and then you know, if it's still saying yes, it's nothing. Then great, Whew. you know, you dodge that one. But um, I think they're. I I was fortunate. I mean, I went to a walk-in clinic. And, and the guy did. He looked at me and said, you know, it's probably nothing, but let's do a follow-up mammogram just to check. And then the mammogram, well, let's do an ultrasound just to see. And then that was like, well, let's do a biopsy. And along the way, it was just still like, this is going to be benign. It's nothing. So yeah, advocate for yourself as well.
0: Keegan, what a pleasure, really. It's really cool to connect with you and to learn more of the details about this remarkable journey of yours. And I really appreciate you taking the time. And I don't have any idea what is next for you, like, let's say in the next two or three years, like at right now, nothing would surprise me. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, I'm not sure what people could tell me you're getting into. And I'd be like, nah. uh. Oh,
1: life. Yes. It's, it's such a wild journey. And this, this last couple of years have been such extreme amplitude. Um, it's, it's exciting to think over the next few years, I mean, anything can happen. You know, the world is in the midst of a bit of chaos right now. Um, and so when I find my mind going all sorts of places, I just remind myself that, wow, some of the coolest things in life came after something hard. And what I have in my life is pretty amazing right now. I have a little boy who is awesome. I have a great family um, and I get to get out and be active every day. And so um, I'm just kind of powered with that. And I, like, I just finished my undergraduate degree that I started 20 years ago. Um, I finished it on Saturday. So it's pretty exciting to still hit some of these little checkpoints and to go, yeah, I wonder what the next few years holds. Hmm.
0: We will all look forward to uh, learning the answer to that. And uh, Keegan, thank you so much. And uh, I look forward to uh, connecting again down the line.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me. Uh, I think these conversations are always really fun and um, yeah, we'll stay in touch.
0: Sounds good, you take care. All right, bye. Well, that's it for this edition of Off the Couch. I wanna say thanks to Keegan for the conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, please take good care of yourself and everyone else. Please keep moving forward. And we will talk to you again tomorrow over on our Bikes and Big Ideas podcast. And then again this Friday over on our Gear 30 podcast. So you can search for and download Bikes and Big Ideas and Gear 30 wherever you get your podcasts. And then we'll see you over there. Bye, everybody.